Ladies and gentlemen, once again, you've tuned in to the Comic Historians Podcast here on iTunes. I'm Bill Field, your host, and here are my cohorts in crime, Alex Grand. Howdy, Alex. Hey, how's it going, Bill? Great. And Jim Thompson. Jim, how are you, bud? Hi, Bill. And we'll get right into this. We're starting out in 1968, which were the waning days of Batmania. We had Batgirl on TV now. We had Wonder Woman trying to be sold to TV, which wouldn't work until 1975. And we had a lot of other TV successes and fails as far as superheroes go. And now, at 1968, we're right about the time that DC starts getting a new lease on life, so to speak. They get things such as Hawk and Dove, The Creeper, and many other DC favorites that we'll go into this week. Without further ado, I'd like Alex to give us a brief history bridge between 1966, where we've been, and now 1968. So, take it away, Alex. Thanks, Bill. So I think one of the main cusp events within D.C. in 1966 leading to 1968 is the influence of Carmine Infantino. He was, of course, instrumental in heralding the so-called Silver Age in 1956 with Showcase 4. His designs on that book, as well as Adam Strange and his 1964 New Look Batman, were seen as a Midas touch by the higher-ups at D.C. in revitalizing the company after the debilitating effects of the comics code. As the end of 1960. 66 goes on and the Batman show picks up. Batmania hits. DC sales were performing much better than it had in the 1950s and Infantino was hired by DC. Donenfeld specifically to be the art director designing a lot of the covers. In 1967, Leibowitz and Donenfeld made a deal to sell DC to Kinney and they paid Bob Kane out of the Batman interest. Carmine witnessed this and was glad Bob Kane was gone as well as Sheldon Moldoff. But with the old guard leaving, there was room for Carmine to be a trusted man at Kinney who promoted him to editorial director. He makes sweeping changes and hires Dick Giordano from Charlton at Steve Ditko's suggestion. As we know from the previous episode, they worked together over at Charlton. And he had artists become the editors, like Joe Kubert, for example, and he brought in a bunch of new talent, like Neil Adams and Danny O'Neill, whom before had kind of a rock-hard door at DC. They couldn't get in. So there was a seismic shift. The editors weren't old pulp writers anymore. They weren't outdated anymore, but rather artists who understood the action and the artistic visuals, the storytelling. So the culture was completely changing at DC. And as Batmania fell apart and the show gets canceled, it leaves us at 1968, and Carmine is in the middle of making a lot of changes to the content of DC Comics. And that kind of brings us to where we are in 1968, so, Jim, what do you find as interesting events in 1968? You were talking about who came in, and I wanted to add the people that were basically pushed out the door during this period, too, because it changes the impact of the, uh, the comics themselves. Wayne Boring gets pushed out. Jim Mooney gets pushed out. George Klein, George Papp, Otto Binder, Edward Hamilton, Jerry Siegel. All these people basically brushed out the door, and with that, there changes the creative teams on so many of the core books. The Flash is no longer drawn by Infantino. Ross Andrew was brought in. Wonder Woman is no longer Ross Andrew. It's Irv Novick, I think. The Justice League changes from Sikowski in that year. Some of these things are improvements. Neil Adams comes into Brave and Bold at the very end of 1968 and does a remarkable run. But again, Ross Andrew comes into The Flash. 
So it's a balancing act. Nick Hardy stops inking and does full pencils and inking on Teen Titans, doing a wonderful run on that. The changes that are notable in terms of the old school stuff, in terms of titles, we end Doom Patrol, an incredible run of that book, with the classic death of all the characters. Blackhawk ends with issue 243. Hawkman actually ends that year as well. But on the plus side, the covers during this period are incredible. Lois Lane gets an update in looks, and Neil Adams starts drawing the covers. Uh, Neil Adams, in fact, starts drawing the covers on all the Superman books during this period, including an incredible run on the Legion of Superheroes and Adventure. Nick Hardy steps up his game on Aquaman covers when he leaves the art chores over to Jim Aparo, again, another example of a switch, although this one works as a pretty smooth transition. But Hardy starts drawing incredible Aquaman covers during this time. The other ones I can think of that come to mind in terms of cover changes sometimes aren't superheroes, but Neil Adams, those covers on Tomahawk at this point are just some of the best work, especially with Jack Adler doing the, the colors on it, are amazing. So Marvel is doing the most interesting stories in 1968 for sure, but because of Nick Carty and Joe Cooper, who comes back from doing the Tales of the Green Beret strip and is back on full-time at DC, it's incredible what they're producing in terms of the covers. Alex, why is that? Infantino, for my awareness, was actually doing the layouts for a lot of those covers that a lot of those pencilers were filling in. And with that, he probably brought a lot of visual dynamic and action. But I think with some of that modern edge, like Neil Adams' penciling, was pretty incredible on top of Carmine's layouts. So what, what do you think, Bill? Well, I think Irish Snap had an awful lot to do with how cool the logos looked and how cool the covers looked other than the cover art. And Irish Snap, of course, will retire, I believe, in 1969. And he basically dies just a few months after that. But he does more than Sal Trapiani ever did for the covers, I think. His logos were just freaking amazing. The Hawk and Dove, the logos actually looked like what they were supposed to be imparting. And that's something that DC had a real strength and stronghold on during this period. And I do concur with you guys. The interiors were somewhat underwhelming to me. Exteriors were far and above what Marvel was doing at the time, I think. So as far as Neil Adams, he had come off of his Ben Casey comic strip. When he got into DC, doors were wide open, Carmine wanted him in. It really felt like he was really hitting some intense artistic expression. Kind of like when Ditko was doing that in the earlier 60s, Neil Adams really hit that in that later 60s with his work in Dead Man especially. Some of those visuals were incredible. The standard heroes are sort of just not really advancing all that much. They will start to do so more at the very end of 1969, such as Wonder Woman being taken over by Denny O'Neill and losing her powers and things. Those last months of 68 really start to change some of that. During Prime 68, thanks to Showcase and a few other books like Strange Adventures, you really do start to see some incredible advancement on new titles and new characters. The key one there is, as you said, Dead Man in Strange Adventures, which Neil Adams takes over. It actually starts in 67 with Infantino. Neil Adams is the one that makes it his own, beginning in the very end of 67 and mostly in 1968. At the same time, he is also given another title, which is bringing back the Spectre from the Golden Age and and basically from Earth 2. Mixed opinions about whether or not that's successful. It seems to have a little bit of a tonal transition problem as different artists come in, having Neil Adams come in after Murphy 
Kofi Anderson is a bit of a shock to the system. Bill mentioned earlier in, in his intro, the Creeper who comes in, Ditko has come in for Marvel, and it gives us, in a one-two punch, the Creeper and then Hawk and Dove. At the same time, some of the other heroes that are more earlier 60s start to end their titles or disappear completely, like Metamorpho, for example. This is also DC's first toy tie-in at this period, which is Captain Action, where a 17-year-old Jim Shooter writes the first story of Captain Action, which is then taken over in terms of art by Wally Wood and Gil Kane. I would also point out that in terms of covers that Neil Adams draws, Neil Adams draws his very first Batman interior work in World's Finest 175 with the Superman Batman Revenge Squad. He's not happy with his depiction of Batman at that time, but by the time he gets to Brave and Bold at the end of 1968, he's beginning to put the look together that becomes so important in the next year when he collaborates with Denny O'Neill on the main series. He does the first three issues of his Brave and Bold run during 1968. So he has that Bork Flash issue and an Aquaman issue and a Spectre issue, but he doesn't get to Green Arrow until 69. I remember when I read that Bork issue the first time, and I thought, okay, this Bork character is kind of this lame character, but the way he was drawn and the way he was fighting Batman, I started to feel like this dread with Bork because nothing could hurt him. And the way that was expressed with the Neil Adams choreography, I felt like I was in the story and that this Bork character, which almost felt like a joke in the beginning, was feeling more and more threatening as the story went along. I thought it was really effective. It's a great story. The Alley Awards for that year, because I think this is really indicative of what Marvel had at the time that maybe they didn't deserve to have. Alley Awards gave Best Adventure Comic to the Fantastic Four. Okay, fair enough. Best Fantasy, Doctor Strange. Dead Man maybe should have won, but at that point, it's a close call. Best War, though. Sergeant Fury, rather than the DC War Books. Best Humor, not Brand Act. Yeah, okay, I'll go with that. Best Romance, though. Millie the Model, when DC's producing pretty good romance stuff at this point, and best reprint, Marvel Superheroes, which is fine, but DC Specials in 1968 started their reprints with that all-Infantino issue, with the cover with the Infantino at the board, drawing, and all those characters watching, and doing it from an auteur perspective. That, to me, was the best reprint book of that year. Amen. I have to agree with you on that. Speaking of non- Superhero, as far as Joe Kubert's Army at War comic book, was a transition away from his Green Beret strip. How do you guys feel about his depictions of war going from Green Beret to Our Army at War? What do you think, Jim? To me, the contrast is between what he's doing when he comes back to DC and what they were doing over at Marvel with Sergeant Fury, where it's basically almost superhero-like and it's war glorification, but it's very simple compared to what's happening at DC at this point. And Kubert brings in a question about war, which seems much more contemporary with what's happening on a national scale during the Vietnam War than what Marvel is doing, where it really doesn't question why they're there. It just has them acting like superheroes superheroes only with machine guns. But the humorous side of that is they were doing Vietnam stories based in World War II, which I thought that was hilarious. They would bring up the same issues that people were having with Vietnam, but they would bring them up totally in context of a World War II story. There weren't a lot of Vietnam War stories being told by Marvel or DC at the time. No, that's very true. I mean, that's like how sci-fi is, base setting, but they're actually talking about something fairly contemporary. I think that's how they almost did the war version of that. 
1968, the only war film on Vietnam War was Green Berets, and it was a financial and critical disaster. They were doing movies like The Wild Bunch and Little Big Man and Westerns about the Vietnam War. So you would do it through that. In the same way that post 9-11, you stopped doing the Schwarzenegger big adventure movies, the Bruce Willis kind of films like that. And instead, that's really what provided the opening for superhero films because you had to add a fantasy element so it wasn't directly in your face too real and too much like the actual real terrorist. I think in some ways, and maybe this is me interpreting, but I think it's true, is as Batmania was falling apart, they didn't really have that cash cow so much to rely on. And I think Infantino was making moves to put more substance into the comics and just bringing a new, fresh perspective. I think we're talking about how there is almost an emphasis on even some non-superhero genres in DC, which they always had it, but more supercharged around this time. In some sense, it could be thought of that Wonder Woman when they took her out of the costume and made it more of a socially relevant comic, or even Creeper, who's not really your standard superhero, almost more like a weird detective eccentric. It almost seems like there's more emphasis on the non-superhero genre, not putting all the eggs in one basket. Just talking about Westerns in the Vietnam War, it's a perfect segue, Alex, to what you're saying in terms of the introduction of Bat Lash, a pacifist, clearly dealing with his questions about violence related to what's going on in the war at the time. But he's really one of the first major anti-heroes that DC brings forward. DC brings it forward with new talent as Sergio Aragonis joins the DC staff at this point, and also Denny O'Neill's influence. So Batlash runs for seven issues, plus the showcase issues. Showcase being the place that really does introduce the notion of these anti-heroes to Marvel. And the questions of authority and conspiracy, you get Secret Six with Frank Springer during this time, too, also running seven issues. The one I was going to mention is Johnny Double, who also is introed in Showcase. Do we know who created Johnny Double? Lynn Wayne and Marv Wolfman. So you're seeing this new breed coming in, knocking at the door, not quite being let in yet. But Johnny Double was their creation. They wrote that first issue. And let me describe it in their own words. A downbeat Don Quixote in a society that frowns on windmills. A once white knight in rusty armor searching for that last dragon to slay. The poor man's Peter Pan. This is classic 1968, and that could be describing Bat Lash, it could be describing Johnny Double, it could be describing Dead Man. No matter what the genre is, or the war books, they're all tied in with this lack of faith and a little bit of a not trusting authority in a way that, that's very different. And I think DC's doing it in some ways better than Marvel. It just wasn't that commercial. And, and speaking of non-commercial, I just have to add that Brother Power the Geek is also introduced. On TV, you had Custer as a very quick success and quick failure, but you had more war tales being told from Western and earlier wars than Vietnam, but they were all told with a Vietnam slant. As with Custer, of course, we know what happened to him. They wanted to focus more on the losers of wars than they did the winners, which I think that plays straight into Vietnam, don't you, Jim? Sure. It's interesting that with Peacemaker a couple weeks ago, we were talking about, I'm a pacifist, so I'm willing to kill for peace. Beginning the transition over to something else, where you look at Bat Lash and you say, is he going to win the West or lose it? And so, are we going to win the war or are we going to lose? Are we going to ruin it? That was the slogan. Is he going to save the West or ruin it? So it really is a shift 
from 1966 to 1968 because of what we're watching on the news on Walter Cronkite every night about questioning the war in a way that we weren't two years earlier. Well, the revolution will be televised. People coming home and actually watching what was going on in the war, you had never had that before. And I think that brought people closer to the fact that, what are we doing? Why are we there? What is going on? And I think that that even that even cuts to today, where we're still doing the same thing with thanks to media and thanks to the 24-hour news cycle, you, you see these same things happening 40 years, 40, 50 years later. Yeah, certain things don't change. You know, something about D.C. and Ditko I wanted to briefly touch upon, especially since we're talking about being thoughtful and pondering about where we are in the world, is Hawk and Dove. He made that with Stephen Skeets. Some have looked at it as a left versus right discussion. You know, I've never thought of it that way. I almost look at it as two polar opposite, emotionally rational people, and then their father, who's a judge, is this logical, almost Ayn Randian objectivist, most likely parroting Steve Ditko's thoughts. How do you guys feel about Hawk and Dove, and why do you think it didn't last very long? Well, I think it was a perfect Vietnam comic. And it even goes to today and the polarization of Trump being president and half the people loving it and half the people hating it. It seems like we're still in 1968. It's kind of funny because you can see clearly that this country's always been polarized in one way or another. And I believe Hawk and Dove was the personification of that. Hmm. That's interesting. I agree with what you guys say, although I don't think it's 50-50 on Donald Trump, statistically speaking. But yes, in terms of polarization, it's more complicated, as you said, Alex, in, in relation to Hawk and Dove, except the comic genre that we're dealing with. And there, it's weighed way heavy in favor of Hawk. This is a problem that I think the creators had it's very hard to draw pacifism in an action-focused comic. So you would have Dove ducking and trying to avoid the fight, and you just want to skip those pages because watching Hawk punch people until everybody's done, whereas watching Dove avoiding a battle, it does slide it toward the more aggressive side in terms of just visually. So it's, it's impossible to make it equal. That's true. And as far as the action visual medium, that totally makes sense. I mean, it's like putting on an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie and having a Hawk and Dove type of plot. And then you have Arnold going commando out there. And then you have Ray Don Chong hiding, you know, under a dumpster. It makes it where, yeah, clearly you favor the Arnold Schwarzenegger scenes in a way. And when you have a supervillain and two heroes addressing it, and one of them is punching them, and the other is saying, I don't think we should do this, your sympathies run toward the more aggressive one, because in that genre, it doesn't make any sense to be a pacifist. It does when you move over to Batlash, or you move over to some of the others, but within the superhero genre, there's very little room for pacifism, unless you're willing to kill in order to enforce your belief, like Peacemaker did. I think that's the inherent problem with the Hawk and Dove concept, and one reason it failed, and also because Steve Ditko couldn't work with Steve Skeets, and he left. That's definitely one part. His tuberculosis did play some role. He also had an issue with Denny O'Neill, because Denny O'Neill was, I think, probably more liberal than Steve Skeets at the time, and that, I think, 
did push the Ayn Randian and Ditko farther away. Of course, his medical illness did take a toll, and they did have antibiotics for him to have a quicker bounce back, but the comic was canceled by that point. However, I did want to say there was some interesting backstory. Stephen Skeets did say, though, that when he would try to shift the script or the story toward Dove having some sort of active role, whether it be some sort of passive martial art or whatever, it was both Dick Giordano and Steve Ditko that would shift it more toward Hawk having all the fun fighting scenes. And I thought that was interesting because of Dick Giordano and Steve Ditko's relationship from Charlton. Giordano did have some feeling of loyalty toward Ditko, considering Ditko did bring him into D.C., into the corporate level. It was also interesting how that friendship didn't pan out, though, because in the 80s, when Giordano tried to give Ditko work, he did say, look, I'm happy to give you work, but I do have to have some editorial oversight on what you're doing. And Ditko said, well, then we have nothing to say to each other. And Dick Giordano then said, I guess we don't. And they never spoke again after that. I find that cycle in their relationship kind of interesting. 1968 is a loyal point for Giordano to Ditko and how Ditko gets a little more rigid and Giordano gets a little more rigid in his role at DC, but they have a separation in their friendship. Well, that's a recurring story, almost like a narrative myth in mythology of these creators who were friends or worked together and then stopped speaking to each other. Whether it's Ditko and Lee or Kirby and Lee, Toth and Kubert stopped speaking to each other at some point. Toth and almost everybody stopped speaking to each other at some point. And you just hear this story, Kane and, and different people, they all stop and they all have these grudges against each other at some point. And we all know the origins behind these and a lot of times they have to do a particular story that they were working on or, or whatever it was Toth that was given the enemy ace story Cooper Candit or whoever the editor was Candit and they didn't speak again for a long time after that and that's an interesting thing DC has this funny history even going back in the 50s, of these editors and their petty disputes with people that are kind of under them in the corporate structure and almost using that over their heads or blocking them. It's odd. That would happen with the newer generation 60s guys and the, the older generation 50s. Of course, in the 50s, I'm referring to people like Weisinger and Schiff with Kirby and other people. It's funny hearing this about Kubert and Toth, but there's also, and I'll talk about later, about Gil Kane and Carmine Infantino. Maybe I just don't know about similar things happening over at Marvel or other companies, but I tend to hear that a lot from DC for some reason. They've got some notoriously hard-edged editors who have grudges with an awful lot of people. I should say it was Adams that was brought in to redraw that Toast story. Kubert was the editor of it at the time and canned the Toast story, and it's actually a lost lost art. We've, we've never seen it. To wind up the DC in 68, we should also talk about one of the major editorial changes, which was bringing Joe Orlando, who had been drawing for DC since 1966, doing stuff like swinging with Binky, I think. So he was also working, I think, was one of the originators of the Inferior Five that was running as his own title in 68, but I think it started in 66. Joe Orlando was put in charge of the Mystery Suspense line in 1968, and I think that changes DC's history and it also changes comics history because of the artists that were brought in and trained under Orlando during that period. With House of Mystery 174, Orlando comes on and immediately does a reprint issue of old horror that challenges the comics code. 
He brings in Bernie Wrightson. First published work is in 1969, but he drew it, was commissioned to draw it by Orlando in 1968, a story called The Man Who Murdered Himself. Orlando opens up, brings in Cain and Abel as the host of the mystery title of House of Mystery. He adds titles during his time there, like Weird War Tales, Swamp Thing, Plop, Witching Hour. He changes Tales of the Unexpected to The Unexpected, and brings in the fashion thing as the host of there. This is when he adds most of the hosts of these titles, therefore bringing in a touch of EC to DC. Phantom Stranger and on a western side, Jonah Hex are all Joe Orlando additions to the line, which I think really do give the, the publisher a, a different feel than what DC was doing at the time. If you think of Jonah Hex versus Kid Colt or Two Gun Kid, there's an awful lot of difference, and it all weighs in DC's favor. And Bernie Wright is actually mentioned more as the creator of the host than Joe Orlando, but Joe Orlando redlined it so it could happen. You got to think, Bill, though, Joe Orlando's coming in from EC Comics, so the notion of the host is straight out of that. Oh, absolutely. But from what Bernie told me, Bernie was the one who went to Joe and said, you need hosts for these books. And then Joe, of course, was like, Light bulb went off in his head and thought, back to EC. So Joe greenlit all that, but it was Bernie Wrightson that brought it up and made it happen from everything I've ever heard. Right, so from what Bernie Wrightson had expressed to you as well. Yes. It always struck me as funny because I always assumed that Joe Orlando had everything to do with that. He went with it, of course, because it was something he was familiar and happy with. It was his soft space, so to speak, where he felt comfortable But it was Bernie that really made all these things happen. And Bernie is seldom credited for his horror work in that period for whatever reason. I think Swamp Thing kind of overshadowed it. I know a lot of people celebrate Bernie's visuals on the macabre and the horror visuals. Let's just say that I'm not totally on board on <laughs> on giving it all to Wrightson, and I love his work. But, Bill, I'm going to do a little research on that, because the fingerprints seem to be on Orlando, knowing that what he did with Plop and some of the other things. And Wrightson is so new and has only done Night Mask. He comes in and he's awfully green that everybody's following his lead on that. Let's just say that I'm a little bit on the Doubt and Comma side. Yeah, sometimes historical record tends to be of who's still alive to talk about it, and sometimes the story changes, so who knows? And everybody remembers their contribution as being, hey, I'm the one that actually told Stan to give Thor a hammer or whatever. It's possible, and I'm not not calling anyone untruthful. I'm just saying history is a subjective thing sometimes in terms of memory. Well, and what Bernie told me, too, was Bernie was getting into EC himself. He was a little too young to remember it when it happened, and he was buying the back issues, and he was really into EC when this timeline occurred. Joe Orlando had moved on, and so Bernie was almost a reminder to Joe to go back to this. So, no, I'm sure Joe had everything to do with it, but I think Bernie was the catalyst for it, by saying, remember what you did back then? And he was like, oh, yeah, because like you said, Bernie was green. He wasn't getting that many pages yet. I do believe he was the person who tapped Joe on the shoulder. I don't want to give him total credit. Don't get me wrong. But I do think that he was most of the impetus for going back to a host format. 
Uh, well, okay. I'm looking at Wikipedia, and they definitely say created by Joe Orlando for both Cain and Abel. I'm sure that's the way history will remember it, but I'm just saying if Bernie hadn't tapped Joe on the shoulder and reminded him and pushed him in that direction, I don't think it would have happened. But no, I'm not trying to take anything away from Joe Orlando. He was true Imagineer of this whole genre. He definitely direct, deserves the respect he gets. I like the term Imagineer. I'm using that one. I like that a lot. Thank you. Wasn't it Alan Moore when he was doing that awesome miniseries Judgment Day and he was doing it about Kirby and he called them, I think, wasn't it he that coined the phrase Imagineers? Imagineer was coined by Walt Disney. He used that as a term for his engineers that were putting his parks together. And so the entire engineering division of Disney is called Imagineering. That's awesome. Disney really deserves the credit on this one, strangely enough. Now, one thing I do want to discuss is, what do you guys think about this trend of Dead Man, Spectre, House of Mystery, the occult, supernatural, making some sort of resurgence? Although the Comics Code did limit those type of stories, what do you guys think about those stories getting some real expression around 1968 and on? Do you feel like they were hitting some sort of note? Do you feel like, there was less optimism in the air, so there was less emphasis on the superhero and more into the darker kind of stories that would emanate into the next decade. What do you guys think of that tendency of fans to want to read some of that dark stuff? There was death in the air because so many people were being drafted and just killed outright. And I think a lot of people had doom and gloom on their minds during this period, don't you, Jim? Yeah, absolutely. It always happens during periods like this. Uh, horror takes upswings whether it's the Korean War, during Vietnam War, horror seems to inch its way back in. But I also think it was a very commercial decision as well, in that they were looking to differentiate themselves from Marvel, and they bring in smartly Joe Orlando and says, we're going to put you in charge of horror and mystery. What do you do with it? And then what he does with it is he brings in EC. I mean, basically, and he brings in new artists like Bernie Wrightson and brings in Kaluta in a couple of years. I think it's Infantino and Orlando that go down and they bring in Tony Zuniga. Jeffrey Jones was also included in that. So all of those are bringing in, and it's fresh, but they're doing horror because they're not doing superheroes, can't compete. When they try with Creeper, with Hawking the Doves, with all of those, none of them, even Dead Man, are not successes. They really aren't succeeding with their superhero stuff, and they can't compete with Marvel on it, but where they just take off like wildfire is that mystery line. And then what it does is it allows this foundation that later creators like Alan Moore taking over Swamp Thing and then Neil Gaiman, it's the secret of DC's success, a critical success at least, for decades later is all this foundational moment with Joe Orlando more than anything. Certainly well, but, not the superhero stuff. But even Doctor Strange was taking a dip at this point. They went this weird route where they tried to give him a mask and make him look more superhero-y and gave him his own title. He took over Strange Tales. But that didn't last very long because 
the apex had been reached in the 60s. I don't think so. I mean, not, not at DC. Marvel never could figure it out. They could figure it out as hybrid characters with the superheroes. And we're going to talk about that, Werewolf by Night and, and Ghost Rider and that. But in terms of their anthology uh, titles, and I don't know why, because what they wanted to do was emulate DC's success, and they brought in the same people. And you have these fantastic stories by Steranko and by Neil Adams and by Barry Smith, and by Wally Wood. And guess what? Nobody reads them. They have to move on, and they luck out, and they hit on Sword and Sorcery and Conan, and they have something. But in terms of their straight horror anthology stuff, it doesn't make it. Nobody buys those books, and they're all canceled pretty early. The Dead of Night and that, those kinds of things, they're epic fails. But yet Creepy and Eerie and all of the Warren books are doing gangbusters at this time. So maybe people were looking more to a harder edge because ratings were escalating at this point for horror movies. They were going up to the mature and then what would become R. And Warren was able to go there without being Comics Code authoritied as far as the comics went. I believe Warren was able to take this to a new apex, whereas Marvel and DC were had their hands tied. I, I don't think DC has their hands tied. I think they're really selling it pretty hard. House of Mystery is a pretty big title for them. House of Secrets. Look at the expansion. If these books weren't doing great, Bill, you wouldn't have five new titles every year coming out that are mystery titles. All of the gothic romance stuff and Phantom Stranger and Spectre and Deadman, the focus on the weird and the horror at DC is pretty pronounced at this point. Well, the weird turn wouldn't come until 71 and 72. But That's what I, I'm talking about. It's an escalation. Yeah. As that happened, then you had the Warren titles decreasing. So it seemed like an ebb and flow between traditional comics and then your black and white 75-cent dollar comics. A yin and yang almost, don't you think? Well, Warren is a case of history of mismanagement. And once Goodwin leaves... After the first year or so of Warren, they suffer, and then they get different editors that know what they're doing, and then they get editors that don't know what they're doing. And that goes back and forth like a yo-yo through the entire run of, of Creepy Neary. And you also have the Myron Feist, where he tried to go even further with Mort Todd as the uh, editor. And Mort Todd's a great guy, a friend of mine. And Mort really tried to do an awful lot with that. He did as much as he could. The entire genre seems to die out by 1980. The black and white horror, I mean. I also think with Marvel's failure until they superheroize their monsters, I think part of it is because that's not what the Marvel audience was looking for. They were so happy with the Kirby legacy, even after Kirby left, of those heroes that they were reluctant to go to support the straight anthology titles. Whereas the DC audience, they were fine with it because they had no allegiance to the stuff that was already being produced. They were willing to experiment. I think that's true. Speaking of the concept of death, I want to go over briefly on Arnold Drake and his run on Doom Patrol in their last issue, with them all just being completely murdered and killed off, they had their final defiant moment, and even in the comic itself, they showed the editing team, but didn't involve the depiction of Arnold Drake. Instead, used Bruno Premiani and Murray Boltanoff. Arnold Drake moving over to Marvel, some issues he had with trying to form some sort of comics union them essentially letting him go and him starting to do the X-Men comics. What do you guys think of the death of the Doom Patrol? Well, 
personally, I think Bruno Premiani was one of the great unsung heroes of the Silver Age, and I think his work on uh, Doom Patrol, it's just, it's beautiful work. He was totally not appreciated like he should have been until years later. Brave and the Bold, the animated TV series, did an homage to the Doom Patrol, and they basically did that last issue as an episode, and it brought tears to my eyes. It was fantastic. I don't know if either one of you have seen it, but they really did the Doom Patrol well, and they acted like they were bringing the Doom Patrol out of retirement to help Batman. They all wind up at the island that gets blown up and they die. I love that stuff. As the animator of the group, I just have to say, Brave and the Bold TV series did a wonderful job with it, and if you ever get a chance to see it, it's fantastic. You well, do. I obviously have, because I, I just said... No, I don't mean you. I mean I mean our listeners, Jim. Okay. Smart ass. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that. Woo! Yeah. I love Jim. I, I just meow, I, meow. I love, I love that we obviously do. Thanks, Jim. Well, you know, Bill. No, I'm kidding. Okay, so onward. My uh, observation on that, I feel like it was a very touching comic. Bruno Premiani's art, it had that Silver Age sheen to it, but with stretchy, cartoonish, almost imperfect approach. I love that with Arnold Drake's incredible writing. I felt like the whole thing read as a really fun personality showcase of Arnold just having fun with the different characters in the book and them all meshing. I almost thought they meshed even better than the Jack Kirby Stanley X-Men. I was hoping that Arnold Drake could bring that similar magic to the X-Men. I didn't feel like it was quite as shiny to me. I loved his work on Doom Patrol, and when they died, I felt a kinship with that book in that, wow, this is like a final cry of a really fun time and the party's over. But I like that they ended it in a nice way where you can really collect the comics as one novel and just read it, and it's over. I thought it was fantastic. And now we come to the point of the hour that you guys seem to love, and that is our rants. And this week, I've been asked by Jim Thompson personally to let him lead the ranting. So, Jim, rant away. Well, I ask that because it is on the Doom Patrol, and partially in response to Alex's question. Alex used the word novel, and I I headed that down in my notes as well. To me, it has a perfect beginning and a perfect ending. That's what Grant Morrison advises in terms of taking on any new book, is when you start it, know the beginning of that character and the death and end of that character. And Doom Patrol is a perfect example of that, And it does read, if you sit down and read the entire thing, it seems like there is a story there. The same way there would be with Neil Gaiman's Sandman. There's something about that book that's really, I can't think of many other examples during this earlier period. With that said, it makes you want to say, I wish this had never, ever been revived. And that's one of the questions and the great conundrums of comics. You can have that notion of, I don't want to see that revived. I don't want Bucky to come back. Everything is perfect. But then you don't get the Winter Soldier. And in the Doom Patrol case, you had horrible, ridiculously unnecessary returns. The Cooperberg series, which I didn't care for at all, and the Joe Stanton art, which is fine, but Doom Patrol ended where it was supposed to end. 
But then you wouldn't have Grant Morrison, and you wouldn't have Danny's The Street, and you wouldn't have that incredible run that basically helps launch the entire Vertigo line because of how good Doom Patrol is, that phase, and all of the stuff that came from that, which is one of my favorite runs ever and is probably equal in power to the original run. And then John Byrne comes and basically pees all over it and ruins it again. So you have this cycle in comics that is great and then bad and then great. And so nothing should be a sacred cow, not even Doom Patrol, because without that you would not have some of the work, the great work that follows, nor would you have the shit that also follows. That's my rant. My rant is the Doom Patrol that really never made it or never made it big, and that's the Doom Patrol of the 70s with the showcase issue where they brought in Niles Calder's widow that nobody ever knew about before, and you have these new characters, the Russian woman taking over for Negative Man. These issues wouldn't really take off until newer reboot in the 80s that we've been talking about. I thought it fell flat, and I thought it was a disservice to the Doom Patrol. And how they brought back Robot Man was very lame to me, and I didn't think that they got it right until Copperberg and Lytle took over the new series that started at issue number one in 1987. And then, of course, you have the Richard Case and a little bit of Eric Larson thrown in the mix. You had that, and you had Dorothy. You had all these new characters, Danny the Street. These were things that were fantastic. I don't really think they relate to the original Doom Patrol. I'm with you, Jim. They shouldn't have both been the real Doom Patrol. And Alex, what's your rant this week? One is Gil Kane. I love Gil Kane art. I love his stories. What's interesting is 1968 is an interesting year for him because he tries to venture away from D.C. as Carmine Infantino has his rise to power and eventually becomes president and publisher of D.C. Comics. Gil Kane ends up exploring non-comic book options like His Name is Savage. It's really great graphic novel for me to read. It wasn't received very well and had some distribution problems. There is some thought that the comics code and the corporate side of DC may have sabotaged the distributors who had agreed to take on that story. What I found also interesting about him, evidently Infantino and Kane had known each other for a couple decades up to that point and had developed this rivalry that wasn't friendly at all. With Infantino being able to hold that over him, I think that set up some sort of repelling force away from D.C., and he formed a friendship with Roy Thomas, who treated him really well and put Gil Kane on the cover of Alter Ego magazine and ended up inviting him over to Marvel, where Gil Kane became fantastic cover artist, did a lot of comic books. He did not do so well with his Black Mark book either with Bantam Books. Some people blame that on them not releasing two books at once. I find that 1968 being a real pivotal year for him to go from DC Green Lantern, Silver Age guy to Bronze Age Marvel artist. Something interesting about Carmine as 1969 rolls along and the Silver Age Gens, and we've talked about this before, but Snapper Carr betrays the Justice League, and Robin goes off to college. 
College, Infantino is sending messages to Jack Kirby to come over to D.C., and we see elements of that, and not Brand X, there was a background image, Mary Severin, Jack Kirby panel, of Infantino saying, all is forgiven, Jack, come on over. I find these really interesting things toward the end of that Silver Age that start bringing in some of the changes at the end, and I think one of the changes that then essentially almost ends the Silver Age for D.C., and probably did better than Hawk and Dove, which we talked about before, as far as trying to polarize viewpoints, was the Green Arrow, Green Lantern comic book by Neil Adams and Danny O'Neill. Although some people call it preachy and other people say it's unreadable and it didn't receive the financial reward that maybe some people feel it deserved, I did feel like it did portray where America was at and the polarization a lot better than Hawk and Dove and also kind of heralded the end of the DC Silver Age. I guess that's my rant. I had mentioned the Alan Moore miniseries that used the phrase Imagineer. It was called Judgment Day. It was drawn by Gil Kane, and the chief Imagineer was named Kane in tribute to Gil Kane. Yeah, I saw that. And they said his name is Kane in it, right? Yeah. The other thing I was going to say, when Gil Kane takes on all of the cover responsibility, and this ties in with what we were talking about at DC in 68, it seems to me that when these artists, whether it's Nick Carty or Neil Adams or Gil Kane, when they're given full cover responsibility where they're churning them out instead of doing interior work, it breaks them somehow. I've seen that Nick Hardy, once he becomes the DC cover artist, his work deteriorates, and I'm not sure it ever fully recovers. And with Gil Kane, I think his Marvel work is so strong, but it does do something to their art. It weakens it overall. They can't sustain that level of work. It breaks them almost. And that gentlemen, brings us to our conclusion today, where we've gone up, over, under, and through 1966 in the late 60s, but we're about to breach and broach the topic of the 70s in the next few weeks, and we will have a special Halloween episode next week, which will center on 1972 and the wonderful, horrible horrible things that were happening at Marvel, but 72 really was a heralding year for Marvel's horror titles, and we're going to get into that and so much more next week on the Comic Book Historian Podcast. I'm Bill Field, your host, and Alex Grand and Jim Thompson are, as usual, my cohorts in crime. Guys, thank you for a wonderful week, and we will see you next week on our jack-o'-lantern episode.